0: Well, welcome back uh, for the afternoon sessions where we take a, a distinct turn towards the legal side of all of this, obviously drawing along the way on all the uh, the broader themes and angles we explored this morning. Uh, for, for session number three on the Fourth Amendment context of all that we've been talking about, I'm, I'm very happy to introduce my, my UT Law School colleague, Ahmed Gabor. Uh Ahmed, for several years, has been litigating national security cases at UT through what was previously known as the National Security Clinic and is now known as our Civil Rights Clinic. It's an extraordinary docket that's ranged from Guantanamo cases to cases, uh, criminal prosecutions linked to uh, Anonymous, which is, I think, fascinating and and apropos in some ways of the the topic we're now going into. Uh, He he wears many hats. He also serves as director of the National Security Defense Project, which has a a, a broad docket of cases, including a number of cybersecurity-related matters. Uh, his scholarship, like his work, reflects the intersection of law, policy, technological change, and security, with an emphasis on cyberspace. And, and lastly, I'll note that, uh, uh, very much unlike me, he has the technological chops to back up his work in this area, having-, having done work as a diagnostics engineer with expertise in complex high-end computer systems. It's all way beyond me, but hopefully it won't be beyond you. Ahmed, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you so much, Bobby. I, I will um, attempt to just live up to 13% of that introduction, and I think we'll all be fine. Um, it is with uh, great pleasure that I introduce the speakers today. Um, the, to my immediate left, uh, Hany Fakuri, who is a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, which I will note is the first civil liberties uh, organization that I ever uh, heard about as an engineer in the Silicon Valley. Um, he um, has written numerous uh, amicus briefs in state and federal courts throughout the country on warrantless police surveillance and cybercrime. Um, he's been published in The Jurist, New York Times, uh, Slate, and Wired Magazine, and is sought after as an expert on electronic surveillance issues in criminal law. Uh, before joining the EFF, Hanni was uh, a federal public defender in San Diego where he tried numerous jury and bench trials and argued uh, and won multiple times before the Ninth Circuit um, on appeal. Um, to his immediate left is uh, Mr. Benjamin Powell, uh, who is uh, a partner with the law firm of William uh, Wilmer Hale, uh, and his practice focuses on cybersecurity, uh, data breach privacy, natural, uh, national security investigations, and international investment issues. Uh, but that's just the start of his bio. I can go on forever, but I will just uh, uh, note a couple of points. First, uh, he was general counsel to uh, the first three directors of national intelligence since 2006. Um, He's worked closely with Congress to modernize uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, an effort that resulted in passage of a landmark comprehensive bipartisan bill, the FISA Amendments Act, which I am sure we are going to be uh, discussing uh, at at some point on this panel. Uh, He has served as uh, special assistant to the president and associate White House counsel, uh, and he's clerked for uh, both Justices uh, Stevens and White of uh, the Supreme Court and uh, a number of other clerkships that if I were to list, it would probably uh, run into the next panel. Uh, He's also a former engineer, um, much as myself. Um, So, as the title of today's panel indicates, the Fourth Amendment and indeed any provision of the Bill of Rights um, probably cannot and should not be limited to the specific historical incidents that gave it birth. In the Fourth Amendment's case, that would be the use of general warrants during the colonial era. Uh, conveniently at that point uh, called writs of assistance um, and issued by <coughs> King George, an extremely broadened scope allowing the general search by law enforcement of any physical property, including uh, homes. Um, so as a result, the Fourth Amendment uh, of back then was very much cabined to notions of property, physical trespass, trespass and so on. Um, at its inception, of course, uh, in, in 1791, Uh, It was not intended to protect uh, privacy on telephonic communications simply for the reason that uh, telephones didn't exist back then. And um, of course today um, there are new technologies and they are very much a reality that society must decide how to regulate and so on. And we will endeavor on this panel, and and then that'll be the last you hear from me, but to look at uh, the Fourth Amendment in the context of three developments since 1791, in addition to the telephone. The first would be uh, the modern threat. And that is an amorphous, stateless, uh, asymmetric uh, attacking threat, um, whether it be terrorism or the rise of the cyber threat. And the corresponding changes in the nature of national security and, therefore, Uh, foreign intelligence uh, requirements. Uh, The second uh, factor that we'll be looking at is the uh, uh, phenomenon of globalization, uh, both in terms of communication technology uh, but also in terms of uh, the uh, uh, presence of the United States in terms of its omnipresence in terms of communications uh, technology and also the fact that it has to adhere to multiple uh, laws uh, across uh, regions and countries. And third, of course, we're going to be looking at the factor of uh, emerging technologies that both capacitate mass surveillance and at the same time the proliferation of technologies that allow uh, individuals to engage in online activities, whether they be nefarious or benign, uh, but in an undetected uh, and unsurveillable manner. Um, so, Henny, um, the, the the Fourth Amendment in technology, that seems to be right up your alley, both as a digital rights attorney but also a former public defender. Um, how is the expectation of privacy guaranteed by the Fourth Amendment affected by technological advancements?
2: Well, that's a really uh, interesting question to answer, and I think it's one that there's going to be a bit of dispute about. And and, th- and that's because, as Ahmed kind of alluded to, um, the Fourth Amendment was written at a time when There was no such thing as a telephone or the internet or all of these modern devices and modern capabilities that we all use uh, today. And there was a shift in the 1960s in in the Supreme Court jurisprudence on the issue where the, the focus of Fourth Amendment protection shifted from trespass, based theories, meaning that the police couldn't step onto property to overhear a conversation, for example, or use a spike mic that they physically installed into a, a house to, to listen in on a conversation, to something broader than just these property-based notions. And instead, the court came up with this, this notion of that people have an expectation of privacy in certain areas. And the real kind of – you know, the, the real issue – in the NSA debate, but even beyond the NSA issue is, well, what does that mean in the 21st century? Does that extend to phone calls, emails, text messages, that sort of thing? Um, And the Supreme Court has given us little bits and pieces of guidance on how the expectation of privacy evolves with changes in technology. So in 1967, in Katz, it said, well, a person has an expectation of privacy in a phone call they place in a public phone booth. Um, you know, Later, the court said people have uh, expectations of privacy to be free from uh, tracking of their movements in private places, though not necessarily in public places. That was in the 1980s. Um, in 2001, in a case called Kilo, the Supreme Court said you have an expectation of privacy uh, from the, the government's use of a thermal imaging device to uh, monitor heat levels inside your house. But they've never gone... You know, but, but since that decision in Kilo, they've really kind of been very silent on, well, what about a text message, or what about my email, or what about my Facebook messages, or what about my phone metadata? Um, and that's why there's this robust debate going on right now about what are the scope of that expectation of privacy in the digital age. I think compounding the, the, the issues, <clears throat> in addition to the Supreme Court not really putting a lot of guidance on how – um, the Fourth Amendment applies to new, ne- new technologies, we've also seen that th- the, the failure for the, of the court to explain and update and provide guidance has led to <laughs> lawmakers and courts and, and policy makers relying on older cases that involve antiquated technologies, for example, to uh, justify certain forms of, of surveillance that they're engaging in. So, for example, we talked... Uh, this morning we were, there was mention of the 215 collection program which collects the metadata, uh, about phone calls at people places. And one of the reasons or one of the ways the government has justified that program as not requiring a search warrant is by saying, well, in 1979 the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Smith versus Maryland said, well, people don't have an expectation of privacy in the phone numbers that they dial. And therefore, in that specific case, the Supreme Court said police could install a pen register, which just captures the phone numbers you dial without a search warrant. Well, then the court didn't really say anything else about that issue for 40 years. And now today, the argument becomes, well, under Smith versus Maryland, you don't have an expectation of privacy in this phone record data. And even more generally, you don't have an expectation of privacy in information you leave with third parties, and therefore that is the legal justification of the 215 program. And, and there's some real issues there, and there's some real problems, at least, at least in my opinion, there's some real problems with taking a very narrow, limited case that was limited to its facts and applying it in a, in a larger scale, but, and, but that is a challenge when it comes – to these new technologies. And it's not just 215. It's, it's an issue with 702 collection. It's an issue with, forget the NSA for a second, just think about domestic law enforcement, you know, solving burglaries and robberies. It's an issue there. And it's it's something that courts are going to have to address, legislators are going to have to address, and, and the general public needs to have a, a conversation about.
1: Just a quick follow-up <coughs> on that. What is the, the the problem with metadata, in your view, in terms of the privacy harm?
2: Well, I, I think as as Bruce was saying more eloquently than I can say at, at lunch, you know that metadata really can capture a very revealing portrait of who you associate with and where you go in your history of associations and your habits and your patterns of movements, and it tells a story about us that was not possible to be told in 1979 because in 1979 everybody had a landline, and that landline necessarily put you in a geographical place, your house. Um, Or wherever that landline was installed, your office or whatever. But today we all carry, you know, our cell phone and this thing tells me, you know, broadcast that I'm sitting here in the AT&T Center in Austin. It probably says, because I'm logged into the AT&T Wi-Fi, it says that I'm in classroom 204, I think we're in. Um, And it says that sitting to my right is... Ahmed, and to my left is Benjamin, and that there's a whole bunch of very uh, esteemed and important people in this room, and that we're having a conversation about the NSA, and that it's going to reveal that when this panel is done, that I'm going to leave the classroom. I'll probably go use the restroom, because I had too much coffee, and then I will go and leave the at and Center and go, you know, I have a plane to catch, so I'm going to go get, on my, get to the plane, and it's going to show the route I took to get to the airport, and that's just one piece of this. And if you take that information and you aggregate that information over an extended period of time, over days and weeks and months, it reveals all sorts of stuff about me that I wouldn't necessarily expect another person to know about me unless they were, you know, like my wife for example. But the issue is, does the does the limited use of the Pen Register in Smith in 1979 did it contemplate this sort of richness of metadata? No. Did the Supreme Court in 1979, when it said you could use a pen register without a search warrant, did they contemplate that this was how technology was going to evolve at the time? No, probably not. And so we're right back at that same dilemma where the law hasn't kept up with the advances in technology.
1: Uh, thank you, Hany. Um I just want to make two remarks. The first is I've actually got Bobby's phone, so you're sitting next to Bobby. <laughs> um, the second is, uh, so there's... Uh, the, the Section Two Fifteen issue has been contested uh, a number of times since the uh, uh, the publication of NSA documents uh, released by uh, Edward Snowden. Um, one of the cases uh, produced this excerpt from uh, Judge Leon out in the D- District Court of D.C. Um, he writes, a rapid and monumental shift towards a, the, the rapid and monumental shift towards a cell phone centric culture means that." The metadata from each person's phone reflects a wealth of the detail about her familial, political, professional, religious, and sexual associations, dot, 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 that could not have been gleaned from uh, a, a data collection in 1979. Records that once would have revealed a few scattered tiles of information uh, now reveal <laughs> an entire mosaic, a vibrant and constantly updated picture of a person's life, and so on. Um, he ends with saying it is likely that these trends have resulted in a greater expectation of privacy and a recognition that society views uh, the expectation as reasonable. So what he's saying in a a nutshell is um, the fact that we have these capabilities means we've got a higher uh, – it changes our expectation of privacy around location data and other sorts of metadata. Now, Ben, is this – is this a critique on the collection of data or the use of data? But also, in your answer, just uh, I, 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 would, I would just ask that you think about uh, whether the fact that uh, the 215 program and the others that we're talking about today have a foreign intelligence function whether, and a national security function in terms of um, their collection, whether that impacts your analysis
3: in any right. way. Right, right. So um, – of course, you know, under and, and what these cases are struggling with is, of course, the and, and what, that excellent, by the way, summary of, of, four, of 200 years of Fourth Amendment doctrine. Uh, I was, I'm glad it's taped. I may go back and look at that, but that was excellent. Uh, so, of course, the way the court has dealt with this under the Fourth Amendments in Smith v. Maryland is the third-party doctrine in terms of uh, a collection that, that once uh, you've given the data to a third party, Uh, that uh, the Fourth Amendment uh, does not generally come into play. So it's not just uh, uh, been in Smith v. Maryland. It was a pen register and uh, and phones, but there's cases on uh, all types of records, uh, bank records, uh, financial records of all types, and those kinds of things applying Smith v. Maryland and the third-party doctrine. So it's not as if in 1979 Smith was decided and uh, nothing ever happened and there's this one case, and that's what we're looking at now um uh, and so that's really been a collection approach to things and sam's is saying uh there's a third party doctrine and uh the 4th amendment's not going to have a lot to say about that if you've given it to a transferred it to a third party obviously that's come under a lot of scholarly uh, uh attack and question over the years and now that's being brought to the fore with those issues so in that sense it's been a collection issue third party doctrine collection falling outside the 4th amendment uh, the Jones case that you mentioned, of course, with the GPS track, tracker uh, produced a, a fractured set of opinions uh, for the Supreme Court. At least a uh, uh, number of the justices, perhaps even five of them, willing to take a more uh, nuanced approach to things to ask uh, you know, what we should look at the actual activity that's being undertaken. What is the expectation of privacy? How is this data being used? How long has the surveillance uh, continued for? Uh, again, no majority in the court for that uh, at the moment, but it does. There have been at least a few cases where you get glimmers uh, where people are look are looking to see is there another approach besides the third party the third party doctrine uh, that's going to come into play in the Fourth Amendment area. That said, once you move away from the third party doctrine, you have a question of what would replace that, and does it become the third party doctrine? Of course. Uh, at least has the, uh, whether you call it a virtue or a vice, uh, some clarity to it. Uh, once you get beyond that and you see this discussion in the Jones case, where uh, Justice Scalia, of course, uh, takes a common law trespass approach to things and says, well, uh, you've actually seized that part of the car. You've, you've intruded, essentially, like coming into my house by seizing a part of my property, putting the GPS tracker on it. Um <clears throat> You know, where where does that go if you get away from the third party doctrine and the the property doctrine? You look at the the four justices uh, led by Justice Alito there uh, discussing, well, you know, maybe this wasn't so problematic if the GPS surveillance happened for two days. But we could see if it goes for six weeks, that's too long. So you'd open up a whole new uh, what some people call mosaic uh, approach to the Fourth Amendment uh, and unclear, you know, what kind of guidance and what that doctrine would look like in terms of the types of guidance for thousands of local police departments, state state law enforcement, and of course, federal law enforcement. Now your second question is, it's going to be very interesting if these cases come up in the area of national security. uh, Because uh, while the court has never addressed uh, the national security exception to the Fourth Amendment and has uh, expressly reserved uh, on those questions, a number of, of lower courts have addressed that and uh, its impact on the reasonableness of the activities, uh, and uh, also whether or not the court will even want to address these issues in the context of national security, given the overlay that is there, when uh, historically, when you look back, uh, what the government has done in terms of foreign intelligence purposes, when there's a foreign intelligence purpose, uh, that that has affected the analysis and approach to these constitutional these constitutional issues. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how these cases come up uh, and you know where the court decides to get involved. I think, uh, uh, I know Justice Scalia, of course, just, uh, uh, I think, uh, I guess, gave a speech where he said, we know nothing about the threats facing the country and we're not really sure we want to be involved in national security. So I don't know. You know, he's one of nine and I don't know whether that reflects the rest of, uh, of the view of the court. That said, even in the non- national security context you see throughout the supreme court cases this pleading for the legislature to be involved and give us a framework and if we think the framework is is reasonable we're going to defer to that framework to to a large extent um what what justice alito says in the uh, jones case i thought was very interesting he says uh in circumstances involving dramatic change The best solution to privacy concerns may be legislative. A legislative body is well-situated to gauge changing public attitudes, to draw detailed lines, and to balance privacy and public safety in a comprehensive way. Uh, So the types of issues uh, that that Bruce eloquently spoke about at lunch, about the Internet, where are we going with all of these issues Uh, of metadata and different types of data? I don't know how well-suited we want to look to nine justices of the Supreme Court over a number of cases to provide, to interpret the Fourth Amendment to somehow give guidance in complicated areas of both national security and uh, a, a framework for addressing these issues. Just a little bit of history here, of course, after Katz was decided uh, in terms of applying the Fourth Amendment in the electronic surveillance area, Congress responded with a comprehensive <laughs> framework under the, under the Wiretap Act, and that brought stability to that area. And while you have some cases on the margins from time to time, From a law enforcement perspective, you now have a, you you have a statute, you follow the statute, you know what is set out there. If you follow those procedures, then you're able to do your job and you know that uh, you're going to be on, you're going to be on stable ground in terms of approving it. So you don't really see Fourth Amendment attacks uh, on the Wiretap Act and other issues.
1: Um, You you mentioned the mosaic theory, and I think I did also for a second, Um, and just to piggyback on some of the earlier talks today, we learned about, um, I think it was Dr. Landis that told us that uh, machine learning and machine <laughs> intelligence um, as a science, basically, um, it, the quality of machine, uh, of the output that you get from machine learning technologies, is almost uh, directly correlated with the amount of data. Um, maybe it's not directly correlated, but it certainly is correlated. And um, applying that to the mosaic theory, and particularly with metadata or even with content, it would imply that you um, might want to actually just um, collect everything and then figure out what you want to do with it later. Um, in that case, Hany, where is the harm, if at all, and is there a Fourth Amendment uh, violation? And if it's addressed outside of that context, um, and, and Ben, feel free to chime in, um, how, how should uh, uh, lawmakers uh, address this? So let's... The collection issue is really
2: interesting because, you know, the Fourth Amendment – we always talk – most people talk about the Fourth Amendment. They talk about search. But the Fourth Amendment says it, it prohibits unreasonable search and seizure. So there are two separate, oftentimes related, but sometimes distinct, you know, characteristics there. There's the search aspect of it, and there's the seizure aspect. And to be clear, to be sure, the the, the capture of all the communications is, is clearly a – you know, I'd argue at least it's a seizure. It's also a search. Now the issue is, and this goes back to what we first started talking about, that the technology aspect of it is well, how does the, how can the government do a a targeted, narrow, particularized search without collecting the the haystack? Right? Um, you know the the. The, the Fourth Amendment it talks about unreasonable search and seizure and also says searches have to be particularized, which generally means if you think about it in a physical world, talk, it means the police or the government, law enforcement, can search or seize, and they can go to the judge and they can get the warrant, but it has to particularly describe the place to be searched. And what that generally means is if you know the suspect lives in an apartment complex, you can't go get a search warrant for every apartment. You gotta, the warrant has to say it's apartment number five. Um, And similarly, if you have probable cause to search for a shotgun, for example, um, when you go execute the search warrant in apartment number five, it would be unreasonable to search paper envelopes on the the desk because the shotgun can't be in the paper envelopes, right? And so these are concepts that make sense in the physical world. But how do we apply them to the digital world? If I want to capture communications, email communications, from someone who I suspect is a member of al-Qaeda, Well, how do I sift through all of the internet data to capture that information to then filter out the irrelevant, you know, the the millions of spam messages in there and then the million uh, images of uh, pornography that are in there and then the sift through all the Groupons and living social deals you don't read and finally actually get to the stuff I want. And this is where there's real tension. And even before the NSA controversy, there was tension and debate in the courts about how to apply these principles to electronic searches, because if you think about it, the government's um, argument, which I I admit, even as a privacy advocate, has I can understand a little bit where they're coming from when they say, well, look, judge, we have to search, and we have to get everything, and we have to search everything to find what it is we want to get, because, you know, the crooks aren't going to label the... A drug ledger file as drugledger.doc, right? And they're not going to label a folder of of child porn as child porn picture folder. Although, that has happened, um, but it doesn't happen too often. So we have to sort through all of it. And the court said, well, look, there's some. If if we allow you to do that, then we're getting into these general type searches that the Fourth Amendment was supposed to do away with. And just because technology has Exploded the amount of information you have to sift through. We have to come up with creative ways to think about how to make your collection and your searching of this data more narrow and more particularized. I think the NSA debate uh, is is the embodiment of this issue. Um, And you know, you Ben, you mentioned um, like uh, after Katz, Congress stepped up and they passed uh, the Wiretap Act to to regulate some of this. Um, You know, in the NSA context, you know, the FAA was passed as a means to kind of cabin the law enforcement's ability to uh, engage in this kind of blanket collection. But as we've seen uh, since the leaks have kind of revealed the contours of this program, we, we're, we're still kind of stuck in the initial dilemma that the Fourth Amendment is designed to prohibit, where you have the massive capture of everything and then you have the sifting through it uh, later. And that is in, in, in the paper context, courts have been very reluctant to approve of that wholesale seizure unless there's a really really compelling need and it's it's I think uh, you know I'm not saying you know national security is not a compelling need at all but I am saying that there isn't that same level of particularity that same sort of showing like we need to collect all of these documents in this file cabinet from this business that we suspect is violating tax laws because we want to find the fraudulent tax forms is one thing but to say well we got to capture every Communication that travels over the internet, so that we can figure out who's talking to who. That's that's taking it too far, and so that's that's where there's real debate, and that's where there's there's some real tension there between the the statutory framework, the constitutional framework, and whether we're allowing the government to do exactly what we're what the Fourth Amendment was intended to prohibit them from doing.
1: Ben, how does the the fact that um, well, just a couple different, um, just a couple things to point out. The first is um, in, in the context of uh, uh, law enforcement searches and seizures. It, it, it makes sense that you're looking for uh, evidence of a crime, et cetera. Um, but in the national security context, is there an argument for um, we just need to collect everything because we need to detect patterns? And specifically, uh, given the cyber threat and the, um, the sort of uh, uh, incredibly amorphous nature footprint of footprint of a cyber attack, um, which one could make an argument that you actually do need to capture everything in order to be able to, to conduct a forensic analysis. Um, not to say that, you know, I agree or disagree with that argument, but, um, does the national security context matter?
3: Uh, I I think it does, does matter. I think the court has, uh, acknowledged that it matters. Uh, certainly, uh, you have the challenge, uh, uh, in front of the foreign intelligence surveillance court of review, which, uh, was an adversarial proceeding, uh, and uh, that was a challenge to something called the Protect America Act, which was a predecessor to the FISA Amendments Act. It had, uh, I think it, 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 I'll, I'll say, less rigorous requirements on the government than the FISA Amendments Act and was upheld uh, in, that, uh, in that challenge where they accepted the national security exception, what's, what's re- colloquially referred to as the national security exception, uh, to the Fourth Amendment, so you do see this, and there's been other cases, of course, along the same, the same lines. Uh, but that said, I don't, I don't think you can ride that uh, too, too far. So the idea of, uh, of it collecting everything, I think it, it matters. I mean, we talked about third-party doctrine, we talked about physical trespass and other issues. So uh, the idea, though, that when you flip over to content, so say. Uh, collecting content um of course there's statutory provisions that would that would stand in the way of collecting collecting everything and collecting the content of everything as a purposeful matter domestically would raise a host uh, i think of constitutional and statutory issues and i'm not aware of anyone arguing uh that as far as domestic content collection that a there's a a quote need to collect everything or that b um that there's a legal framework um to, to do that, that somebody is actually, actually doing that. What this often goes to then, of course, is the question of incidental collection when you're doing something for foreign intelligence reasons where you're tar- targeting people overseas, not protected by the Fourth Amendment, but they're in communications with U.S. persons. Uh, and whether or not those, mit- what are called minimization procedures, how do you protect that incidental collection? Were you seemingly every so number of years kind of have this debate over the incidental collection because the intelligence community will say we do foreign intelligence, we collect against foreigners overseas, we target uh, people who are reasonably believed to be outside of the United States or non-U.S. persons, and then you get the argument, but yes, in doing that, don't you get U.S. persons, and aren't they protected by the Fourth Amendment, and are those minimization procedures and how you treat that, in, that incidental collection uh, consistent with the Fourth Amendment? That's the way it's been done. Uh, and handled by the community for for many years. The point that you bring up for the future, I think, is is very important in terms of cybersecurity and cyber threats, because that, of course, as has been discussed at this conference, uh, the uh, the geographical uh, worldwide problem that cybersecurity presents, the cyber threats, uh, who in the government is protecting. Uh, The networks here in the United States, a lot of articles you read all the time about critical infrastructure and the threats to the critical infrastructure, and we're really struggling, uh, I think both on the private sector side and the public sector side, about how do we deal with this threat? Does the government have a role there uh, in terms of protecting those networks? What is that role? Uh, And how does that fit under the Fourth Amendment if you were to do things for defensive purposes? And you know all of the recent debate, I think, really shadows and throws a shadow over the over the cyber efforts uh, that Congress was trying to frankly grapple with some of these information sharing and other issues. And I think that is very much lost momentum for now. we're now in a place uh, where we're going to wait and see what happens. But the the cyber debate is in the shadows here, uh, in terms of what does this mean for cybersecurity, and what are the, are the threats real? And, of course, there's a lot of debate about how real those threats are uh, to the domestic networks, and does the government have a role there? Uh, that would be consistent with the Fourth, the fourth Amendment.
1: So is, I, just to clear up my confusion, is there any limit to uh, – and this is an open question – to um, what you can and can't collect in terms of metadata? Do we want to collect everything? I'm, I'm just just to be. Does the Fourth Amendment actually cabinet somewhere that's clear? When it goes to the Supreme Court, are they going to announce an automation exception and say, "Well, the fact that no human beings looked at this metadata doesn't make it in any way, shape, or form um, a privacy violation, and therefore it's completely um, <coughs> lawful." Annie.
2: Uh, well, I, I was going to say, I think, you know, as, as Ben alluded to you know the supreme court decided smith and then lower courts have in piecemeal taken on different aspects of metadata so you know there's cases out there that say well okay subscriber information you give to your isp is not protected under the 4th amendment there's case you know federal cases that have said well okay the the records of which cell phone tower your cell phone connects to is not protected by the 4th amendment although there are state court cases interpreting their state constitution privacy protections have gone the opposite way um, so I mean, not many courts have looked at it wholesale. Um, since the Snowden revelations, the courts that have looked at 215 specifically wholesale, and there are two courts that have issued opinions on it have gone the exact opposite way. So you've got Judge Leon in the District of DC said uh, Fourth Amendment problem. Um, I can't remember the name of the judge, but the one the, Judge Paulie in the Southern District of New York. And the ACLU suit went the exact opposite way, said, nope, there's no problem with this collection. It falls under Smith v. Maryland. That case is up in front of the Second Circuit now. And so um, it's going to come to a head at some point. Um, You know, I would argue that, you know, and and you kind of were asking, you know, what is the substitute for the third-party doctrine? And I think in my mind, the way I think of a substitute is let's forget this idea that – every little piece of information we disclose to another means that not only have we lost that our privacy expectations in that piece of information but in the global set of information that flows from it and instead we need to have a, a I would like to see the 4th amendment go back to focus on in, on kind of a concept of like intrusiveness which is always present in the in the 4th amendment jurisprudence i mean at its core the 4th amendment looks at what is the government's action, and how intrusive uh, is it, and does it violate an expectation of of privacy? And I think if we refocus on that, and again, state courts interpreting their state constitutions, which can provide stronger protection than the Fourth Amendment, have s- signaled a willingness to take a more robust view of what the, you know, the how invasive a particular piece of metadata or surveillance or uh, whether we truly expose something to another person is. And, I, and I'd actually say even the U.S. Supreme Court has not, never really made a, a hard line, flat rule that says anything that is, uh, could potentially be exposed to a third party is not protected. I mean, in, in Bond, which is a Supreme Court case from 2000 involved, uh, police, uh, like immigration officials went on a bus and they felt a, a passenger's piece of luggage. And the Supreme Court there said that violated Fourth Amendment. They said Um, physically touching the bag was more intrusive than just looking at the bag. And um, just because the passenger put the bag in the overhead compartment did not necessarily mean he allowed anyone to look through the bag or feel the bag at will. That's not what we expect when, I'm, when I get on an airplane. I may expect the person sitting next to me to move my bag over to fit his bag, but I don't expect someone to come and start squeezing and grabbing my bag. If I did that, I'd be like, what the hell are you doing? So, um, you know, we, sh- we have to bring our the Fourth Amendment back to that place and to really think about that. And, and technology provides a great way to do that because, like the quote that um, Ahmed read from Judge Leon, This data is more revealing now than it's ever been at any other time. And probably 10 years from now, it's going to be even more revealing. And so we have to future-proof our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. We have to future-proof the statutes that are going to get um, enacted in result of of this conversation and this debate. And and I think that's a way to do it, to think about intrusiveness and what that really means when we turn something over to a third party or, or expose it in a limited sense.
1: And and as as the technologies have advanced in terms of what the government can do, what they can analyze, and what they can collect, um, so have the technologies that are available to um, society um, and privacy tools like uh, Tor or um, the use of encryption and so on. Um, If I use encryption and if I use Tor or some other anonymity tool, um, do I have a heightened expectation of privacy?
3: Should I? Well, um, that's um, y- y- certainly under the subjective tests of, of CATS, you've, you've, you've made some showing about, about your privacy. There's a lot of criticism of that uh, analysis over there that we should look to what people do to make, to kind of put it on people to have to do things like uh, a tour or, or encryption and how much that should, that should factor into the analysis. Uh, I don't know that you'd want to be in a place that would say – you know, those of us who are technically sophisticated uh, and use Tor and encryption, which is frankly not that user-friendly, we were talking about this at, at, at lunch, uh, uh, to these days there where you'd say, well, if you use this, you're going to get this constitutional protection, but you know, if you don't, you don't get this constitutional protection. So I don't know that that is the equivalent of saying, okay, you know, in the typical Fourth Amendment context where I do things in public view, uh, I have – obviously a reduced expectation of privacy if i'm know uh, if i know i'm being taped on the web and those kinds of things the two-party consent rules in the states are, are not going to apply because i haven't i don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy i don't know that you'd want to get to a place where you're putting on people you know using high-end tools and say well you get special privileges because you have this technological uh, uh capability uh and therefore we're going to give you this heightened constitutional protection that would be a uh an interesting Fourth Amendment doctrine to go down that path, and I think the, the court would be uh, reluctant to go down that path uh, in terms of the sophistication of the of the tools you use. The court is much more used to talking about plain view and other things where you really show that you know you're going to be in public and, uh, and and not taking any steps to, to protect your privacy.
1: So, so looking at that from the opposite view, um, Hanny, um the fact that. Anonymity technologies actually make your appearance, um, or you, would, you might appear to be um, coming from a foreign country. So your IP address might reflect that of, let's say, Croatia or the Netherlands or so on. And um, as we know, the uh, Fourth Amendment abroad app- that does not apply to non-U.S. persons and does apply to U.S. citizens, but only with a reasonableness standard. In other words, there's no warrant requirement. It's safe to say it's a, a lesser uh, Fourth Amendment um, burden. Uh, correct, and so, in a way, does using anonymity tools actually give you a lesser expectation of privacy?
2: Well, I, I share Ben's concerns about framing any sort of constitutional right on who uses what specific technologies, but I think the flip side of that is, um, it, it. Well, I like to think of it this way: you know, like well over a hundred years ago, and ex parte Jackson, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1896 said, when you put a letter in the mail, you have an expectation of privacy in the contents of the letter. You don't necessarily have an expectation of privacy in the envelope and in the stamp and the address of where your letter is going to and in the return address, but you have, you know, you don't expect the postman to come and see your mail and decide he wants to open it and read what you've got to say and then close it and then reseal it and mail it. We don't expect that. And so to the extent that there are, you know, uh, tools out there that help make that envelope even more tamper-proof, I'm all for it. Um, and I, I would hope that our government would not take steps to undermine that. And there has been some suggestion that they, they have. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a technologist. I, I, I don't know the, the specific contours of that or, or what. But, I mean, that's what's been reported. And um, the, real, the real issue is that, like, something like Tor, which was, was actually developed by the U.S. government – Um, to help its diplomats communicate back home in the United States securely without having other countries intercept their communications, that we should be encouraging, you know, we should be encouraging the development of these tools, and the development of these tools will, I think, in turn, you know, create a general sense of, you know, email communication is a private thing. It is just the 21st century equivalent of mailing a letter. And we shouldn't decide that just because... Google owns the inbox, and AT and T owns the pipe that sends my, trans, uh, my that transits my message. That all of a sudden, my Fourth Amendment protections no longer apply. Now, I think with respect to email, there's actually good case law that says email is protected by an expectation of privacy. But I mean, it's like one appellate court decision in the Sixth Circuit, and that's it. Um, but we need to have a, a stronger recognition of that. So, to the extent that those tools can reinforce the idea that um, electronic communications and the, especially the contents of those communications should remain private, then, you know, I think that's a, that's a step in the right direction and it's a step towards um, future-proofing
1: the Fourth Amendment, if you will. And in terms of the, uh, the international nature of communications, um, Ben, uh, we've got uh, a situation where you might uh, be storing your data in the cloud and not knowing exactly what country it's in. Um, So let's say I store my data in the the, whatever cloud I'm registered with, and it's in Palo Alto, California, and then with this other cloud that I'm registered with, it winds up in Iceland or something. Um, Are we at a point where, uh, because of this international nature, that we have to revisit how we look at expectation of privacy, at least with respect to the geography?
3: Uh, I, I don't know that um, you know they are. So the protections are going to apply to the to the U.S. citizens uh, generally wherever they are in the world. Uh, and, in, and in fact, a little noticed, overlooked provision of the FISA Amendments Act, actually, uh, one of the uh, compromises or deals that was made that that got bipartisan support for that was to modify something an obscure provision called section 2.5 of executive order 12 triple three prior to the FISA amendments act of 2008, you did not need a court order, uh, to carry out uh, electronic surveillance of us persons overseas. Uh, and that some of that had been actually litigated before the FISA amendments act as a statutory matter, uh, changed that, uh, prior to the FISA amendments act, you went to the attorney general to get what was known as a 2.5 order, uh now uh uh it was at FISA was amended to say that now you need to get a court order to go overseas. I bring that up because um it's an example of a place where the Fourth Amendment doctrine did not change, but Congress made considered this issue, brought to their attention there was you know debate over the issues, votes taken, and now there's a statutory framework. It's clear uh you know what, what you have to do if you're in the intelligence community or law uh to uh, and, and you want to carry out certain operations. I, I just bring that up because it's an example of a place where uh, the things that we talked about in terms of privacy and new technology, are we going to develop that in some kind of very uneven set of Fourth Amendment cases through the courts? Uh, that's gonna leave uh, many people in a place of, uh, of instability, uh, lots of panels, lots of probably law schools talking about what all these cases mean How does it apply to metadata? How does it apply to records stored in the cloud and those types of things? Uh, Is is it really a debate that's more suitable uh, for the legislature and Congress to settle? I think the courts, particularly the Supreme Court, and you see this throughout their opinions, uh, what few there are on the issue, all but beg for, you know, please give us a framework on this. There's lots of different issues here. Uh, Otherwise, we're going to be, in in many of the Fourth Amendment cases in the law enforcement context, are intensely fact-specific. And you could say that about lots of constitutional cases, but the Fourth Amendment is special in that sense. uh, When you read these cases, you know, there's one about dog sniffs, and there's a debate, did the dog step off the path that went to the front door? I know that one. Okay, you know that one very well. You know, so Mm -hmm. these are – you know, are we going to really proceed in, you know, this type of complex – area by, through a court and judicial solution in incremental cases, particularly in the shadow of national security interests uh, and uh, what what people think are real threats to the country. Bruce outlined in his lunch speech many of these types of issues about how do we engineer the internet, what are the kinds of things that we need to think about. Is the nine justices of the Supreme Court over a case, over, you know, cases over a decade or two decades really the place where we're going to settle these issues and do we want to settle these issues so many of the things i think you brought up you know may be more suitable for, for legislative solutions than court solutions that's not to say that you know it's not as if you go to congress and it's an easy thing and everyone sits down and is reasonable and we all sit around the table and settle it it's it's messy it's democratic but at the end you often end up with a much more stable solution where everyone can look at this you don't have to guess and you know, what does this case mean? Did the dog step off the path that went to the door? Was there a knocker on the door that invited people to come up to the door? And try to use these analogies in the cyber context, which I'm not sure they're going to work.
1: Yeah, and do you train the dog to recognize that there's a knocker on the door and therefore having the ability to go in, right? right. Uh, Hany, do you agree? Do you think this is a, an issue for Congress and not for the courts?
2: Well, I, I think that's, the way I see it is there's room for both. Sure. And the sure. reason, and, and actually not just that there's room for both, but there's a need for both, because the 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 thing that I fear is that um, Congress. I, I have probably little faith in Congress, um, but it, I mean the, the the history. I think Wiretap Act accepted the history of Congress legislating around. Surveillance and privacy issues, in my opinion, has been kind of spotty. So, for example, we, we mentioned Smith v. Maryland as the Pen Register case. Well, you know, a number of years later, in 1986, Congress passes a Pen Register Act, which <coughs> basically dictates how law enforcement can go and install a Pen Register, in it, and it imposes a reasonable standard, which is, okay, fine. Um, but, again, they haven't touched the statute in 25, almost 30 years now, and now it's like... Um, that is the authority that allows the government to collect uh, all sorts of uh, metadata. They can't, they can't use it to collect location information because of CALEA. You can get real into the weeds, but I'll, I'll spare you all. Um, but, it, you know, they can still capture a very rich, detailed amount of information. Um, we mentioned FAA, and, you know, the FAA was uh, a response to um, outcries uh based in you know reporting in 2006, 2007 about uh, some of the surveillance programs in place on, by President Bush. But you know the way we're seeing the FAA implemented, um, and, and this is something I've actually had a debate with my colleagues about. the, the question is whether like bulk collection of contents, does that, is that what the FAA contemplated? Or not, and and some people said no. That's that's not what the FAA contemplated. And I'm going to have to ask you about this because you know you sound like you played a, pr- a pretty prominent role in that. Um, it, you know, is that what the FAA contemplated? Uh, is it not what you the FAA contemplated? You can ask him right now, by the way. <laughs> and, and no and, you know, questions. It's, just, it's like presidential it. debates. Exactly. And, and and the and the issue is like well, if if bulk collection is what in fact the FAA contemplated, it's unconstitutional, right? And so and now it's like well, okay. And then let's say it is unconstitutional. Then we're gonna have to say we're gonna have to fix the statute. It's like last week we saw like three different proposals to fix two fifteen, and it's like, well, which one of these is gonna get passed? And then the political bartering starts. And so, um, it's I I agree with you that there's a role for Congress to play and to create statutory framework, and that will make clear rules for everyone, and I think that benefits everyone. But we can't um, put the courts completely in the sidelines because a many of the statutory Decisions that are being made are based on court decisions, and B, it's going to be up to the courts to, you know, review the constitutionality of these statutes, and C, um, as much as the courts don't um, update their Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, unfortunately, Congress hasn't really updated its statutes either. So that's that's my fear with, with, with Congress. So. Could you
3: explain the FAA? You keep
2: talking about oh, sure.
1: it, for a novice uh, lawyer. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was I was just going to say, speaking of being sidelined, it's time for you guys to ask questions. So, um, can you explain what the FAA sure, so, stands for? Uh, so
2: it's the it's the FISA Amendments Act, and it's basically a, a statutory framework that is part of FISA that allows the government to engage in targeted collection of uh, communication records as long as one of the the, as long as the the, the target is abroad, um, but it has been interpreted to allow for the collection of Americans' communications. I think it was um, uh, Clapper just uh, a couple days ago sent a letter to Senator Wyden about the they used 702, which is a portion of the FAA to capture and review communication records of Americans. And so that's, that, that's what, you know, and I, I don't think this is a whole scale, you know, they're reading everybody's email, but it, it is a mechanism by which the government has justified as saying we've complied with the statute to collect uh, very sensitive details. Um,
3: yeah, let me clarify this. The FISA Amendments Act, what it does is it says you can go and you, you can target people who are reasonably believed, non-U.S. persons are reasonably believed to be outside the United States. I'm aware of no acknowledgement. There's other people in the room who can raise their hand and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not aware of any uh, targeted collection of Americans' communications, except uh, on a, a in a place where they're not in compliance, and there's been a mistake made. But I'm not aware of any targeted collection of Americans. What you do get uh, when you do that, just as has happened for many, many, many decades, is, is your uh, when the NSA is, or the FBI or anyone else, when they're targeting somebody, of course, a U.S. person may show up communicating with that person. So you get what's called incidentally collected communications. That's somebody. So uh, I don't know whether it was F A if it was how it was collected. I don't recall what's been declassified. I've just read the FBI report, but you recall Major Hassan at at Fort Hood. This is in the FBI report. I I don't know. This is nothing based on uh, my time in government. But Major Hassan, the the Fort Hood shooter, of course, was uh, in contact with Anwar al-Awlaki. So clearly the government was doing something to uh, monitor, uh, al Al-Awlaki and got, uh, had, uh, inc- what are called incidentally collected communications of, uh, of, uh, I think it was major Hassan, the Fort Hood shooter. And so the government needs procedures. Then you've got us person communication. Can you use that? Uh, we now know that, you know, now we've got a major who's in the army, who's, uh, in contact with a known terrorist, a very significant terrorist, the question has always been in these debates, well, what do we do with that? Because we didn't have a warrant to get this US person's communication, right? We got it because we were doing, somehow we were covering al uh communications. Well, do we ignore Major Hassan? Uh, do we pass that information to the FBI and uh, look at what Major Hassan has done? Why is this person who's a major in the army in contact with a known terrorist who's undertaking operational planning? Uh, to kill Americans, that would seem to be of something of interest to the FBI. Do we say, "Oh my gosh, we got incidentally collected U.S. person information"? Throw it away. Let, let's pretend it never happened. Um, so you have to deal with that issue, and you need some kind of framework for dealing with those kinds of communications. And that's often where the crux of this debate is: is when you get this incidentally collected U.S. person uh, information. See. I see. Add one over there, and then one also in the back after.
1: Chris
4: Inglis, just uh, kind of to add to what Ben just said, I'm aware of no application of FAA, right, the uh, 702 provision or others to enable bulk collection. Uh, Of course, we've had a discussion about how 215, which is a completely separate legal instrument, allows for the bulk collection of metadata, which does not include, um, by the way, geolocation data, so it's um, restricted in that regard. Um, Further, there are actually specific prohibitions, not implied, but specific prohibitions to use 702, right, um, under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Amendment Act um, to reverse target Americans, such that if you know, um, on average, that this person of, of interest to you is always in contact with this foreign person of interest to you, if the first person is a U.S. person anywhere in the world and your intent is to know more, more about them, and you're trying to be ever so clever by saying, and I can't actually focus my time and attention on them, I'll just focus on the person I know they're in contact with overseas, that is specifically (coughs) prohibited. Um, And and therefore, um, you can't get to that place unless you, in fact, develop a probable cause um, for that person explicitly. Um, You know, finally, I I would observe that um, to the earlier conversation you had, um, my sense, as a practitioner at NSA, is that the courts have, and the whole of government, has not been the least bit ambiguous about the expectation of privacy of content um, of a U.S. person anywhere in the world. That's to include subject lines and emails. Um, that there is an expectation of privacy, um, and therefore, if you are to target that for a U.S. person, you need a probable cause warrant. Our general counsel is here from NSA. See if I've got that right.
1: In, in the effort of trying to be a little more transparent at NSA, um, I, I recently testified about some of the details of how we conduct this collection. And so it is very targeted in the sense of being directed at particular identifiers, an email address or a phone number. And so while there may be legitimate policy issues, certainly about um, incidental collection, I wouldn't want anyone to walk away thinking there's a mass intake of content under this um, indiscriminate
4: content under this uh, statutory provision.
1: You mean indiscriminate U.S. person content or? Frankly anybody's. So th- this provision is implemented by targeting particular phone numbers or emails or other specific identifiers.
0: Questions?
1: This will be the last one by the way. Unless anyone else raises their hand, it's really quickly. Uh, or not. Okay. Uh, this is
4: the version of it that I can't show you. It's going to be at London
0: City Airport. Faruqi? Uh,
3: so there's, an, there's a simple argument I hear from time to time that says maybe the NSA is allowed to collect whatever it wants, even on U.S. citizens, because that's not information that's going to be used in a prosecution. And the Fourth Amendment is really just a protection on what evidence can be brought into a prosecution at, at the end. Um, would you like to dispel that, and um, Mr. Day, if you're willing to respond to that, you know, opine on that too, I'd, I'd welcome your thoughts.
2: So I, I think the, I would I'll disagree a little bit with your characterization of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment is intended to be a that check on how the government, use government use searches and question 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 seizes, period. It is not, it, it can apply in a civil context, It can apply in a criminal context. It is a, it is a restriction on the government's ability to engage in a search and seizure. Now. It
3: so Ansar
0: Pro is our latest application
3: with the financial um, market. Uh, it I, takes, okay. you know,
0: of all the Bloomberg, a, you know, a, a competing assets, speaker, you know, uh, news, <laughs> live TV, obviously. So, so, inside so inside the inside
2: the if I may interrupt the voice, uh, the voice of God here. Um, I think the, we're being uh, surveilled. Uh, uh, yeah. you know, so, so to be clear, the Fourth Amendment. It says the government should not engage in unreasonable search and seizure. Doesn't matter if it's for a criminal investigation or a civil investigation. You you can bring a lawsuit, by, say, in the government illegally searched stuff for tax purposes, whatever. So it's not necessarily hinged to criminal investigation. Now it routinely comes up in criminal investigations because that's where most of the time the government is searching and seizing. And in terms of the prohibition of the use of tainted evidence, of of illegally searched or legally seized evidence, that's also not really in the text of the Fourth Amendment itself. It's basically a judicially created remedy for the violation of the Fourth Amendment, and it's a way to deter the government from engaging in illegal searches and seizures. And so... um, so I think that the issue of well, it's going to be used in a criminal. It's it, you know most people don't don't care. It's, they're not going to be charged with a crime. I, I think kind of is not really the the point. The point is, you know, should the government collect and search and seize data in w- whether it's bulk under two fifteen targeted whatever it may be. You know, what are the contours for that? And and to be clear, it, it, the, you know, we've never. You know, I'm not here to say they can never collect anything ever. Long live liberty. Okay. Um, what I'm here to say is there are legal limits to how that collection is supposed to take place to how those searches are supposed to take place and and as i think you know we've all kind of discussed you know the the law has not kept up with the technological realities and there are questions and there are lingering questions and there are about what does 21st century search and seizure law look like what does it look like in the statutes what does it look like under the 4th amendment as a whole, what are the courts going to deal with it? The courts are reluctant. Congress is slow to act, and in the meantime, we've seen this explosive growth in the technology. We've seen, uh, you know, law enforcement's not really sure what to do, and in, off- in many instances, uh, practitioners aren't sure what to do. Defendants don't know what's going on. We don't know, you know, what our rights are, what the contours of this. But but this is the debate we're going to have.
1: Just to tack on just a fifteen-second comment before we close the panel. Um, the, uh, the reality is that th- this evidence actually ends up oftentimes in a criminal case. Um, the only difference is that um, there, is, uh, uh, there are hurdles to accessing the evidence um, uh, because it's classified, top secret. Even if you have a clearance as a defense attorney, uh, you're not permitted to look at the FISA application, for instance. And um, in my view, that is probably the number one concern I have about the the use of foreign intelligence, um, um, just information, period, in the context of the the domestic criminal case. Um, With that, I'm going to close the uh, panel. And thank you guys very much. Thank you very much.